This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Welcome, Talk Catholic, the website.com, your host, Tim Kilcoyne. No agendas here, just the straight and narrow, through Mary to Jesus, the Catholic faith proclaimed and preserved. Hope to see you here every week. TalkCatholic.com with Tim Kilcoyne, and it's time for our Saint of the Month, and we'll get to her, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, a mystic of the Church who had some fascinating prophecies that one could easily argue are being played out before our very eyes right now, and mystical gifts very parallel to St. Padre Pio. But first, I want to continue on with our little mini-series on the Synod on Synodality and what lurks behind this, because there's uh, some serious questionable actions and statements going on regarding the Synod that were brought to highlight recently in a letter by Cardinal Pell, who just passed, and it was only 36 hours prior to that, that he wrote a most scathing indictment of this Synod, calling to mind its, um, well, its shallowness in Scripture, to say the least. What I'd like to do is take a particular article from an excellent Catholic periodical, Catholic Family News, and it's by Matt Gaspers, and the title of this is Continuous Aggiornamento, pardon my Italian, Synod Seeks to Preserve Precious Legacy of Vatican II, and this particular article picks apart quite nicely some of the extremely questionable themes of this Synod, and they've come up with a new document, it's called The Working Document for the Continental Stage, and this was very much at the focus of Cardinal Pell's wrath. And the overarching theme of the Synod is basically a scriptural reference to Isaiah uh, 54, verse 2, enlarge the space of your tent. So what does that mean? I'm immediately remembering an old, very successful talk show host out of Boston. Let's call him Jay. And he was not a Catholic, but he had a fascination with our faith. And he often would make the comment that if I'm going to belong to a religion, I want one that's going to make it hard for me to belong because it stands for something. Well, already the overarching theme is 180 from that line of thinking, which I think is very common amongst those who are in the process of conversion. They very much are looking for the real deal, and they're not looking for shortcuts or the easy way out or easy way in. And yet you can see that the architects of this synod are absolutely making sure that the door is wide, not narrow, as our Lord himself reminded us. And so this is basically an open idea of radical inclusion, Matt Gasper refers to, which is found in a few places throughout the text. The vision, he says, of a church capable of radical inclusion, shared belonging, and deep hospitality, according to the teachings of Jesus, is at the heart of the synodal process. Instead of behaving like gatekeepers trying to exclude others from the table, this is the document now, we need to do more to make sure that people know that everyone can find a place and a home here. So, ladies and gentlemen, what exactly does that mean? Is 
I've said in previous shows that we just kind of a drinking club. Everybody's in. And we have heard some statements referencing murderers as being part of the communion of God. So if everybody is just simply in, then there is no moral code that we need to subscribe to of any kind, is there? Because we're going to get a free ticket to heaven anyway. It sound, that, That's how I interpret it. All right. This is naivete and possibly malice, whether they have the intention or not, because it's going to do tremendous damage. It's called scandal to God's faithful people. We try harder because we need to strive. We all of a sudden are given a sense of radical inclusion. You tell me whether that raises the bar for that striving or not. I think it's quite obvious where common sense leads here. It's like the child that knows he's not going to get disciplined, even if he has a temper tantrum. Uh, he'll have more of them, won't he? So human nature is not any different as we get older. And Matt Gaspers refers to Pope John the Twenty-Third, originally at Vatican II, who really coined that term, agiomento, open the windows, let's update to the world. In other words, we're going to look at the zeitgeist of the times and we're going to conform. No, 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 no. <laughs> exactly the opposite. We are always, and the only reason we're still here as a church, 2,000 plus years old and ongoing and unchanging, is because we remained unchanging. Everybody else changed. That's why they're gone, right? No, we don't update to the world. We are going to hold the bar higher for the world and hope and pray for that world to come home to Holy Mother Church. That's the way it works. And therefore, we don't acquiesce and accommodate like a dysfunctional family does with its uh, sinful members. We hold the principles of integrity of the family high for everyone to see. And we tell all members, these are the rules for living. And there is a door and we want you in. But if you're going to stay outside because you don't want to live by the basic rules of living, God's rules for living, then you got to stay outside. Oh, how uncharitable the guilty would say. These uh, political types, which is what they really are, are the very people that are all in favor of open borders, no sovereignty of a country, no walls, okay? But of course, every person that owns a home knows that there is thorough legitimacy to keeping your doors locked at night, all right? And maybe even having a fence just to establish where the boundaries are between you and your neighbor, because it might be important if uh, little ones are having their friends over and all of a sudden you're completely invaded. This is common sense. It has to be lived out in the theological realm as much as any other realm. And unfortunately, our leaders are extremely lost in some kind of political fog. It's not a fog. It's a very deliberate agenda. And unfortunately, it has a more political basis for it than it does any kind of theology legitimate. An age-old ecclesiology and understanding of the church for all time, is that the church was going to be leavened to that world. Not part of it, but salt to it. We are admitting that it's wounded, and we are the ones who are going to try to clean the wound. Now, how do we do that? We do that by offering the means of sanctification, proclaiming the truth of the gospel of our Lord and all of his commandments, all of the truths and teachings of the church, all of the sacramental graces that are to be found in the seven holy sacraments, there is a very direct 
channel of grace possible to make that road, that new journey for many, very realistic. Truly, this is not something impossible. All things possible with God, with your cooperation in grace. Ladies and gentlemen, but you have to want to be in grace. Therefore, are we exclusionary indeed? For there is no sin in heaven. We are simply trying to be the reflection of exactly what heaven is going to be like without blemish. And in fact, there are no sinners in heaven. There has to be a cleaning up process prior. We call it purgatory or what the church does here and now sacramentally for your soul. So this is theological common sense, 2000 plus years old, and it's all being thrown out the window with political language. In any event, we will continue to pick apart carefully with real focus on the exact concepts being promulgated by this synod in hope that we can express our sense of the faithful, the census fidelium, to our leaders to get on the phone and to call up these bishops and cardinals and let them know we don't want change. We want to stay holy, one, apostolic, and Catholic. And with that, may we sequel to exactly one most holy Catholic woman, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. From the website catholic.org, Emmerich was born into a family of poor farmers and had nine brothers and sisters. The family's surname was derived from an ancestral town. From an early age, she helped with the house and farm work. Her schooling was rather brief, but all those who knew her noticed that she felt drawn to prayer from an early age. At 12, she started to work at a large farm in the vicinity for three years and later learned to be a seamstress, and as such, for several years. She applied for admission to various convents, but she was rejected because she could not afford a dowry. Eventually, the poor Clares and Munster agreed to accept her, provided she would learn to play the organ. She went to the organist's Sonchen Kosfeld to study music and to learn to play the organ, but the poverty of Sonchen family prompted her to work there and to sacrifice her small savings in an effort to help them. In 1802, at the age of 28, Emmerich and her friend Clara Sonchen finally managed to join the Augustinian nuns at the convent of Actenberg in Dulman. The following year, Emmerich took her religious vows. In the convent, she became known for her strict observance of the order's rule, but from the beginning to 1811, she was often quite ill and had to endure great pain. At times, her zeal and strict adherence to the rules disturbed some of the more tepid sisters who were puzzled by her weak health and religious ecstasies. In early 1813, marks of the stigmata were reported on Emmerich's body. The parish priest called in two doctors to examine her, when word of the phenomenon spread three months later, he notified the vicar general. With the news causing considerable talk in the town, the ecclesiastical authorities conducted a lengthy investigation. Many doctors wished to examine the case, and although efforts were made to discourage the curious, there were visitors whose rank or status gained them entry. During this time, the poet and romanticist Clemens Brentano first visited. At the end of 1818, the periodic bleeding of Emmerich's hands and feet stopped and the wounds had closed. While many in the community viewed the stigmata is real. Others considered Emmerich an imposter, conspiring with her associates to perpetuate a fraud. Oh, his church history changed. Never forget the scorn of St. Padre Pio by authorities. In August 1819, the civil authorities intervened and moved Emmerich to a different house, where she was kept under observation for three weeks. The members of the commission could find no evidence of fraud and were divided in their opinions. Emmerich said that as a child, she had visions in which she talked with Jesus saw the souls in purgatory, and witnessed the core 
of the Holy Trinity in the form of three concentric, interpenetrating full spheres. The largest but dimmest of the spheres represented the Father Core, the medium sphere, the Son Core, and the smallest and brightest sphere, the Holy Spirit Core. Each sphere of omnipresent God is extended toward infinity beyond God's core placed in heaven. From 1819 until Emmerich's death in 1824, Clement Brentano filled many notebooks with accounts of her visions involving scenes from the New Testament and the life of the Virgin Mary. In 1833, he published his first volume, The Dolorous Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the meditations of Anne Catherine Emmerich. Brentano then prepared the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary from the visions of Anna Catherine Emmerich for publication, but he died in 1842. should be noted that Anne Catherine Emmerich was most inspiring toward Mel Gibson putting together the material for The Passion of the Christ. He is very much an advocate of her writings. In any event, here a few excerpts from her writings, one being on the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and Catherine Emmerich describes Mary's house in Ephesus. The Blessed Virgin's dwelling was not in Ephesus itself, but from three to four hours distant. It stood on a height of upon which several Christians from Judea, among them, some of the holy women related to her, had taken up their abode. Between this height and Ephesus glided, with many a crooked curve, a little river. The height sloped obliquely toward Ephesus. In 1881, a French priest, the Abbe Julien Gouillet, used Emmerich's book to search for the house in Ephesus and found it based on the descriptions. He was not taken seriously at first, but Sister Marie de Mandat Grancy persisted until two other priests followed the same path and confirmed the finding. The Holy See has taken no official position on the authenticity of the location, but in 1951, Pope Pius XII initially declared the house a holy place. Pope John XXIII later made the declaration permanent. Pope Paul VI in 1967, Pope John Paul II in 1979, and Pope Benedict XVI in 2006 visited the house and treated it as a shrine. Her example opened the hearts of poor and rich alike, of simple and cultured persons whom she instructed in loving dedication to Jesus Christ. These were the words of Pope John Paul II in his homily on Sunday, 3 October 2004. The process of Emmerich's beatification was started in 1892 by the Bishop of Munster. In 1928, however, the Vatican suspended the process when it was suspected that Clemens Brentano had fabricated some of the material that appeared in the books he wrote and which he had attributed to Emmerich. In 1973, the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints allowed the case for her beatification to be reopened, provided it only focused on the issue of her life without any reference to the doctored material. In July 2003, the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints promulgated a decree of a miracle attributed to her, and that paved the way for her beatification. On 3 October 2004, Anne Catherine Emmerich was beatified by Pope John Paul II. When we come back, we'll hear about some extraordinary mystical phenomena in the life of Anne Catherine Emmerich. This is WQPH Radio 89.3. FM. Now, from a different website, mysticsofthechurch.com, it puts together a compilation of so many of the experiences and visions that Anne Catherine Emmerich received regarding angels and devils. Anne Catherine Emmerich was favored since her childhood with the guidance and protection of her guardian angel. Sounds like St. Padre Pio. God allowed her to entrust her will to this angelic creature, who in turn enlightened her to God's designs upon her soul. Anne even revealed that her angel often took her to various places during her ecstatic moments throughout all of Europe and even to the Holy Land, often too 
disfavored soul would communicate with the poor souls in purgatory via the guidance of her angel, who led her safely through this place of purification in order that she might visit those who implored her aid. In turn, Anne would pray and suffer in order to help free them from their pain and help gain their entrance into the heavenly kingdom. With regard to bilocation, again referencing St. Padre Pio, the angel calls me and I follow him to various places. He takes me to people I know or who are complete strangers. We cross the sea as quickly as thought travels. It is he who took me to see the Queen of France in prison. When he comes to take me on a journey, I see a glimmering light. Then his luminous form appears before me like a flash from a lantern open in the dark. And we journey along the darkness. A faint light floats over our path. We pass over countries and distant regions, passing over roads, deserts, rivers, and seas. We always travel on foot. My knees and feet ache. I often have to climb mountains. My guide is in front of me or at my side. I never see his feet move. He is silent. He makes few motions. And sometimes he follows his replies by gestures of the hand or inclinations of his head. I'm reminded of the the ghost of Christmas future in the Dickens movie. He is transparent. He is grave, but very kind. His head is uncovered in his long white robe like a priest. I address him freely and never look him fully in the face. I never ask him any questions as I am satisfied just being near him. I call to him to go to the angel of the person for whom I am praying. I say, now I shall stay here, but do go to such or such place where thy help is needed and then I see him go. When I come to broad waters and I know not how to cross, I find myself all at once on the other side and I look back and wonder. For chosen souls like Anne Catherine, who receive mystical graces, our Lord often allows them to be attacked and assailed by the demons so as to keep them from being prideful and to teach them complete trust in God. Anne Catherine knew all too well the attacks that spring forth from the devil. She once received blows to the face from a demon who appeared to her in the form of a great black dog. Very, again, very reminiscent of St. Padre Pio's life. Another time, the evil one tried to hurl her down a ladder. She even experienced icy cold hands grabbing at her feet with the intention of throwing her to the ground. She also had the gift of hieronosis, the ability to discern blessed objects. Very interesting here, ladies and gentlemen. This is a gift which involves the ability to discern holy things from those which are not holy, including the following, whether or not a host has been consecrated, if an object has or has not been blessed, the presence of a good or evil spirit, and the ability to find lost or hidden objects and holy relics. This charism is closely related to the gift of cardiognosis, knowing the hearts of people as St. Padre Pio could know what you were leaving out in the confessional, and is very common among God's stigmatists. Therefore, it is only fitting to believe that souls who are unusually holy themselves would be able to sense when a holy presence is in their midst. Anne Catherine Emmerich was unusually gifted in the discernment of holy things. Her remarkable ability to sense when an ordained priest was near, or the identification of relics or their whereabouts is well documented. Other visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich include those of heaven, purgatory along with intimate details in the lives of many saints. Many of these saints she conversed with and she often witnessed events in their lives as if she were right there beside them. The list is truly impressive, so only some of their names will be mentioned here. Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary, her own guardian angels, Saint Agnes, Saint Agatha, Saint Dorothea, Saint Benedict, Saint Cyprian, Saint Scholastica, Saint Thomas Aquinas, Saint Perpetua, Saint Hubert, Saint Ursula, St. Felicity, St. Justina, St. Gertrude, St. Catherine of Siena, 
St. Francis de Sales, and this is far from being a complete list. In addition to all this, she also received many prophecies about future events. Many of these revelations have come true, sometimes with remarkable accuracy. And finally, what are some of these messages and visions that she received specifically from the website catholicismpure.wordpress? Of the many visions and prophecies of Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, her accounts concerning the future of the Church and the rising of the false church are the most poignant in light of the upheavals we are witnessing in the church and which could be referring to our times. Here are some of the most relevant excerpts from her visions. The church is the only one, the Roman Catholic, and if there were left upon earth but one Catholic, he would be the one universal church, the Catholic church, the church of Jesus Christ, against which the gates of hell shall never prevail. I saw a secret sect relentlessly undermining the great church, masonry. When the church had been for the most part destroyed by the secret sect, and when only the sanctuary and the altar were still standing, I saw the wreckers of the secret sect enter the church with the beast. I saw an apparition of the mother of God, and she said that the tribulation would be very great. She added that these people must pray fervently with outstretched arms. They must pray above all for the church of darkness to leave Rome. The church is in great danger. I see that in this place, Rome, the Catholic Church, is being so cleverly undermined that there will hardly remain a hundred or so priests who have not been deceived. They all work for destruction, even the clergy. The great devastation is now at hand. When I saw the church of St. Peter in ruins and the manner in which so many of the clergy were themselves busy at this work of destruction, none of them wishing to do it openly in front of others, I was in such distress that I cried out to Jesus with all my might, imploring his mercy. Then I saw before me the heavenly spouse. He said, among other things, that this translation of the church from one place to another meant that she would seem to be in complete decline, but she would rise again, even if there remained but one Catholic. The church would con- conquer again because she does not rest on human counsels and intelligence. It was also shown to me that there were almost no Christians left in the old acceptance of the word. The church is completely isolated as if completely deserted. It seems that everyone is running away. I saw what I believe to be nearly all the bishops of the world, but only a small number were perfectly sound. I saw that many pastors allowed themselves to be taken up with ideas that were dangerous to the church. They were building a great, strange, and extravagant church. Everyone was to be admitted in in order to be united and have equal rights. I heard that Lucifer, if I'm not mistaken, will be freed again for a while, 50 or 60 years before the year 2000 AD. A false church and wicked men scheming against the Catholic Church and doing much harm, both in her own time and in the future, and actually saw in a vision this, the enemies of the church, tearing it down and trying to build a new one on strictly human plans. Sounds, ladies and gentlemen, like the Tower of Babel from the Old Testament days, revisited once again in our time. Not to forget the beginning of this show relative to the Synod. I'm reminded of a book I have called Defiance, basically a history of the Antichrist in every era. And it's the same old story, ladies and gentlemen. People turning away from the Creator and His divine Word and making for themselves a new religion of man. Don't think that we cannot be responsible for such a thing. And the closer we try to open those doors to that world, prince of that world, disaster. His immorality, as the late Catholic evangelist Steve Bannon has to say, there are no conspiracies, but there are 
no coincidences. What the Synod on Synodality has been shaping up to be and forecasting for itself sounds terribly parallel to the visions of Anne Catherine Emmer. This is WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. Spring is around the corner for our conversion. Let your light shine. That is what it's all about here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. But we need to hear your story. You want your voice to be his voice. That is making the faith known to others. Please, my number is 877-625-3727. Tim Kilcoin, TalkCatholic.com. St. Mother Teresa told us, your ministry is your work right where you are. Grab on to this microphone. God bless. <laughs>